0: Well, thank you everybody so much for joining us. This is Pinch Punch, the last day of the month of January 2010. And as a special, special present or prize for the listeners, we have uh, the uh, psychotherapist Daniel Mackler, who I recently had a very stimulating and by all reports from the listeners, exciting and uh, thought-provoking Uh, interview with and he has kindly agreed to to join us and uh, answer any questions that people may have Uh, a brief caveat is probably in order as usual which is that this is just like advice column stuff this is no substitute for an actual conversation with a therapist or anything like that but if you have general questions which you think would be uh, useful to to uh, have responded to by Mr. Mackler, please, uh, please do uh, speak them up, and uh, I'm sure he will be more than happy to take his best swing at it. But uh, just remember, it's no substitute for actually talking to a therapist, and please try and keep your questions uh, on the general side of things. So thank you so much for uh, taking the time, Daniel. I really do appreciate it. I know that you're winding down your practice, uh, which I think is uh, a shame for your patients, but I'm sure is, uh, is good for your future desires. And uh, I really do appreciate you taking the time.
1: Well, it's nice to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: My pleasure, my pleasure. So I'm not going to do my normal ramble, tangent, spittle intro, but uh, and insta- I'm instead going to invite you to uh, ask questions. There are a number of different ways that you can ask Daniel questions. First, of course, most importantly, smoke signals, particularly if you are an Iroquois. Uh, secondly, we have carrier pigeons. Third, we have mime video cam uploads. And uh, last but not least, we have Skype followed by the chat room, which you can type into and ask a question, followed by a phone number, which you can call into at 315-876-9705. Just please let James P. in the chat room know that you're calling, and uh, you, can, uh, you can join in there. So I will um, not uh, do anything other than ask you to ask Daniel whatever is on your mind about the process of therapy, finding a good therapist, what you can expect, what you cannot expect. And uh, if you have questions, please spreken Sie up.
2: Well, so I Hello. guess let's go. Oh, hi. Hi. I was um, I was just reading your website and some of the essays that were on it, and some, uh, some questions came up around the uh, three differences between therapy and friendship
1: essay. Oh, yeah. I see. So I'm trying to learn how this all works. So you're Greg, I guess, right? Yes. Okay. Hi, Greg.
2: Hi. Good to meet
1: you. Good to meet you too.
2: So, yeah, I was reading that and I liked the article and I thought it was really well written and really uh, well thought out. And I just had some questions or some clarifications uh, around especially the Section 3 personal questions. OK, you're going to or... have
1: to remind me because I probably haven't read it in <laughs> about six months myself.
2: So. Sure, sure. Well, basically, in Section 1, you said the purpose of each relationship. The therapist's purpose is to help the patient face his buried traumas. Uh And that's just a very brief synopsis. The patient's purpose is to grow at all costs. And friendship is mutually beneficial selfishness.
1: Yeah, that's kind of uh, provocative what I said.
2: Oh, I I fundamentally agree with all of that. Um, But I I had some questions around uh, personal questions, section three. Okay. Uh, especially the bit in friendship wherein you said, um, it is acceptable for a friend to ask any personal question for the sake of his own personal growth, but only insofar as it respects the delicate balance of the friendship. This requires much patience, self-awareness, and appropriate mutual self-appraisal on the part of both friends. On the contrary, it is rarely appropriate for a friend to ask or request a question intended to stimulate the other to grow or explore. That is a therapeutic question and does not belong in a friendship. And I was, I was just sort of curious on if you could... Um, I need to process
1: explain. that for a second. Now, first, let me just think about it. I sure. have to decide if I agree with what I wrote. And I think I do. <laughs> so, so I think I'll feel comfortable explaining it better and defending it. So go, okay.
2: Sure. And, and I that just sort of, um, uh, I guess, raised some questions in me as to the difference between mutual growth and asking personal questions <laughs> of each other in the context of because uh, even if a friend asks a question that's very personal to another friend, right. um, What where you would draw that line between a therapeutic-type question and a question intended to grow in a friendship sense?
1: Okay, so where would I draw the line? I guess the way I handle that question is – and the way I do a lot of my writing when I come up with my quote series is I – um. I use my own personal friendships as my model, and I also use my relationships with my patients as my model. So I find with my personal friendships, I and also the way my friends treat me, I don't I actually find it um, rather offensive when people who are friends with me start asking me questions that where their purpose is to help me grow. and. I don't like that. And so I apply the golden rule where I don't ask other people questions like that. And I know some people that love being asked questions like that, and they they like friendships that, um, that are sort of like therapy relationships, and they find that very appropriate. I don't. Now, I don't know if I'm exactly answering your question, but the flip side is when I'm with patients of mine, um, whenever I have a personal question to ask them, I bounce it through my head i self-reflect and ask myself am i asking this because i'm just generally curious and there's lots of things about my patients that i'm very curious about at times and i could spend hours just picking apart things in their lives that i want to know just for my own edification but if i find that there's not really a therapeutic reason to ask the question then i don't ask it and now sometimes it's complicated because not only is there a therapeutic reason for me asking it but i also am curious in that case i say it's fine. And I ask the question, but if it's just for curiosity, I don't ask it now, where do I draw the line? So I guess you're asking.
2: Well, for example, like, um, it, the, uh, the level of appropriateness of, uh, occasion, cause I mean, I guess just to be in, in full disclosure, I do have some friendships wherein I, um, uh, my friends helped him help me to grow and ask me questions intended to right. help me grow. And then I, so I have some of those friendships and I do like that. And I was I was curious if it would be more like a universal principle of this is an unhealthy thing to do or if that's more of just a this is my personal preference and it's worked for me.
1: Right. And now here's the complexity in me answering this question. And this is also the complexity in me writing the essays on my website. If I write things that I set it down as a theory and I say this is unhealthy and this is healthy and it's a distinct thing then basically what I'm saying to you is your friendships are unhealthy in certain ways. And that's a complicated thing for me to answer because whether I think it or not, it doesn't mean I want to say it. And, and so I guess my entire website is based on my personal experience. Is it true? Is it 100% factual? Everything I'm saying, not necessarily, but I state it as fact and I come with the assumption that everything I'm saying has a subjective quality but the degree to which uh my self-reflection actually overlaps with truth or allows my thoughts to overlap with truth that's the degree to which it is objective but obviously because i'm just a person it's going to be subjective so I, i would have to i would i and i know i'm still just talking in a lot of circles here but no no but basically if I watched your friendship and I could be 100% with your friendships where you were doing this, and I could be 100% completely honest, I might say, you know, it makes me uncomfortable. I, I wouldn't want to do that in a friendship. I wouldn't want friends that ask me questions like that. Because the bottom line is, I think it's, in my life, I am my own therapist. I I don't have a therapist anymore. I have haven't had one for a long time. And I practice therapy with myself. So I ask myself those kind of questions. And I don't, I don't want my friends asking me those kind of questions, and and I really do get offended when friends ask me questions, and I'm very sensitive to it when friends ask me therapeutic questions. And usually, for me, when I am in a relationship with someone where they start asking me therapeutic questions, um, I, I pull away. Now, I have some close friends. I, I'm, I'm I'm trying to find if there are exceptions to my theory that I created, and. There might be very rare occasions if I'm in a lot of pain, I'm really, really suffering and I'm in a lot of turmoil. And I might have a friend who asks me a therapeutic like question and I might accept that role as. Uh, uh, them being in the role of sort of a almost like a friend therapist to me, but it would have to be very rare because I can think of I can think of examples, actually, where some of my closest friends have asked me therapeutic questions and I don't find it inappropriate, but. If it starts becoming i'd say more than one tenth of one percent of our relationship, then I don't want it
0: and sorry, somebody just asked um what is a therapeutic question if you could give an example
1: that's a that's a good thing to say uh and i i'm trying to think of a good example um let me think well, for instance, let's say I'm talking with a friend about my relationship with my parents and ways in which I might be replicating my relationship with my parents, with other people in my life, other authority figures, for example. And the friend might ask me, uh, well, what might motivate you to replicate those your, your relationship, your ancient relationship with your parents, with the modern authority figures in your life? And then I can picture the friend scratching their chin and looking at me that's like behaving like a therapist. So it would be sort of an open-ended question where the motivation on the part of the person, the friend who's asking the question is to help me grow. And on the other hand, I could see the friend asking a question. I'm trying to think if I could formulate a question that a friend might ask. If I say, you know, I think I'm replicating my relationship with my parents with certain authority figures, modern authority figures in my life, the friend might go, Oh, I'm really curious about that. Could you tell me more about how you're doing that? Just because I'm really curious. It's basically a similar question. They want to know more. They want to get more information. But in one case, the motivation is to satisfy their own curiosity and to learn. And in that way, I feel like I'm dealing with a peer and there's a mutual relationship there. In the other case, I feel like the person is putting themselves in a position where they're not asking for their own curiosity. They're asking to help me. And I, I feel that, the balance in the friendship becomes unequal. They're taking a more powerful role and that throws off the balance of the friendship. And I don't like that. On the other hand, with a therapist, I don't want the therapist to pretend like they're my peer and my equal, because that's not why I'd be going to them. That's not why I'd be paying them money. And I'm basically would be using the therapist in a therapeutic relationship as an extension of myself, as opposed to as a separate person. And I don't know if that exactly makes sense, and I still feel like I might be being very long-winded, but I'm just doing my best to answer it. No,
0: oh, no long-winded is guess... uh, long-winded is definitely the purpose, and I'd just like to add a thought or two from a non-therapist perspective. But go for uh, it. I think that um, I mean it is an interesting question because a friendship which is based on intimacy and mutual respect should have that openness of heart and openness of mind that you can ask questions and so on. But as far as I understand it, the therapeutic relationship is an authority relationship, right? The therapist is assumed to be an expert, you know, has training and has a goal in mind, which is sort of revealed over time, which he's leading the person towards the patient towards on a a long term basis. It's a series of questions, which in a sense, the therapist is asking because he believes he already knows the answer. But the oh, that's an, that's an not.
1: interesting question. Can I cut in for a second? Yeah, please. There? This is actually an interesting question you brought. I'll, I agree with everything you said until the last thing. And I thought actually it was a really good explanation that you just gave that. But the last thing is the therapist asks the question that he already thinks he already knows the answer to. Actually, for me, that's a criteria that I use the exact opposite where I sit with patients. I try to never ask questions that I already know the answer to, to my patients, because otherwise I feel like I'm asking rhetorical questions and that's a bit insulting because it's sort of like, I'm asking, it's like, then I'm sort of leading the witness as opposed to, I, I do use my curiosity in my relationship with my patients as a basic guiding force for myself, but I just, it's just simply the motivation for why I'm in this relationship is completely different than why I'm in a relationship with a friendship uh, with with a friend it's the same thing being in a romantic relationship it's it's not necessarily bad in a romantic relationship hypothetically if you believe the romantic relationships are okay to be sexually involved with a partner whereas it's completely inappropriate for a therapist to do it because uh, because of one is the power differential between the therapist and the patient versus friends or romantic partners where I believe theoretically there should be a level of equality there and the second one is. How in the world could a therapist being sexually involved with a patient uh, allow the therapist to further the patient's goals of growing? I think it's it's far too easy for the exact opposite to happen as the result of a sexual relationship. And I'm, I'm taking it in a different angle, but I, I just wanted to touch on that point. So I try when I ask patients questions. I often hold my questions back. I don't ask them if I feel like I already know the answer. I wait until I can get a question that I really don't know the answer to. And then, and then it, it creates a lot more energy in the room. And I think also people can pick up on it when they're being asked a question that the questioner already knows the answer to. I think they often unconsciously, sometimes consciously can feel like it's a bit of a game. And so I I hold my questions and I wait until I get something that I really don't know. And then I can ask with really stimulated curiosity.
0: Uh, no, and I agree, sense? and that's that's an excellent clarification. Of course, uh, I, I, it certainly didn't mean to imply that you know exactly what the person's going to say, but it I'm is sorry. a guided conversation on the part of a therapist. Otherwise, you'd be like random question generator or some guy from the street, right? So there is a sort of or, guidedness or. to some degree to the conversations with the therapist. Would that be fair to say?
1: Totally, totally right on. Yes.
0: Right. And that's not the case with friendships because friendships do not, should not have at least th- th- these roles can switch. The authority roles can switch, but friendships yes. should not get locked into an authority pattern. And when you are having a guided conversation, that is an authority situation. Like when you're describing your symptoms to the doctor, that is not an equal relationship no. uh, in terms of knowledge and expertise. Uh, so I think right. for friendships, for one person to take the sort of uh, the, the guided um, and expert role in the friendship creates an imbalance of equality. That in the, and it's okay, you know, little bits as you were saying, Daniel. If you're really upset and a need to somebody like a drowning man needs a log, then it's great. But it shouldn't be one sided and in perpetuity.
1: Yes, and you also said something else that I liked. That and there was an implication of what you said that a friendship is not a guided relationship. And I and and, and that's a differ- a difference that I didn't actually get in my essay. That there is a guided quality and a purpose in in, in guidedness in the therapeutic relationship, where the relationship is very open-ended. I'm like, hey, I don't hang out with my friends. Hey, I'm going to meet you tonight at 7 o'clock for dinner, and we're going to have a guided, uh, you know, we're going to have a, a subject for this, this meeting, and we're going to go in this direction, and I'm going to lead you, and maybe next time you'll lead me. It's not like that at all.
0: Yeah, there is a spontaneity and a sharing that goes on that uh, is not. Uh, and, of course, the, the therapeutic relationship in some ways is uh, a little bit more uh, focused upon the patient. It should be, I guess, a fair, fair amount more focused on the patient than on the therapist. Yeah. And that, again, should yes. not be the case in a friendship of equals in the long run, I mean.
1: Right. Now, here's an interesting thing. I'm going to throw, um, I, I don't know what you'd call it, throw a wrench in the middle of this one, that when I work with patients who are dealing with, Psychotic issues. Sometimes they're floridly psychotic. They're in a very different reality. They're extremely anxious. They're anxious to the point of terrified. They're hallucinating. They're delusional. Often, a lot of what I'm saying about therapy doesn't apply. Sometimes, I do come down to the level of equal stuff. Sometimes I reveal totally more information. It's a totally different way of doing therapy. And so, I when I write about therapy, often I'm writing about uh, therapy with people who are not psychotic but with psychotic people whoa the game is totally different game in quotes that is
0: right and just just for those who don't know the technical term floridly psychotic refers to anybody who disagrees with anything on free domain radio i think that's really really <laughs> important to clarify <laughs> no if you could just explain or, that term and, and, and you have to add anyone who
1: disagrees with anything on iraresoul.com that's too, right
0: exactly uh, and that no, means, means people who are very much out of reality and even hallucinating in someone is that is that fair to say
1: which is a complicated thing because what? Then again, that begs the question of what is reality? Because of course, you can easily suddenly define 99% of psych, society as being quite psychotic, and I wouldn't necessarily disagree with that argument.
0: I don't. But, think I would either. But, <laughs> no. but so, Greg, it, it, did that uh, did that take a fair swing at your question?
2: Yeah, I thought it did. So I guess just just one more point that came up while you guys were talking was for me was I guess. I mean, if friends do genuinely get joy out of, like, this would be how I I see my friendships, like, genuinely get joy out of helping each other with with self-growth but it's not in sort of a guided therapeutic sense that would be i mean from what you, I, I get the sense that you're saying like for example and and changing that role like it's not always one friend but it's just like hey you need some help let me talk through this issue with you oh uh, i'm having some trouble with this and then so much more of a fluid sense would that be more along the lines of the spontaneous um, probably uh, friendship?
1: yeah and right, i also right. think this is a weakness on my website. I state things in black and white a lot of times for the, for the sake of brevity, for the sake of clarity to make a point. And right. so what you're saying, I think is you're talking about more of the shades of gray and I may not be disagreeing with you there because I can often read my own stuff and say, Oh, that didn't apply to what I just did yesterday. But <laughs> right. Um, yeah. So I, I think that that's a fair thing that you said.
2: Gotcha. Okay. Well, I got, I've, uh, no more uh, qualms about any of that stuff and that was a good explanation so I guess the next person who has questions or if you guys have more to add
0: no I think that's great uh, if you have another question for the highly esteemed Daniel Macro please uh, speak up to the mic and uh, we we really would like to take the next um, in either Orkish or Klingon which I think uh, Daniel's um, pretty fluent in both so feel free to to jump into either of those dialects that was Klingon <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know. I know. <laughs> All right. This is time for people Hello? to speak. We have lots of people. Yes, go ahead.
2: Hi. Um, I just have a quick question for Daniel, and maybe um, Stefan can come on, comment on the topic a little bit. Um, Stefan uh, has frequently uh, talked about this idea of the sort of ecosystem, and I was wondering if uh, Daniel had a uh, sort of similar concept in terms of psychology and uh, how the two might compare.
0: Can you uh, sorry just, just before ecosystem. sorry Daniel, just before you respond to that because i don 't think daniel 's aware of, of the way that I approach. Uh, self-knowledge from a philosophical standpoint which is uh, I have uh, a phrase that I use called the Miko system which is that, that I am not a sort of singular identity or personality but I am a sort of ecosystem of competing uh, thoughts and interests and personalities and sometimes even voices as we all know when we get into arguments with ourselves and so on that it, I don't think it's healthy to try and reduce the self to a singularity because I think it doesn't take into account the complexity of the different roles that we inherit and inhabit and play uh, even throughout the day, let alone through our lives. So I try to talk about the personality more as an ecosystem than as a, a sort of single identity.
1: Did you make up that word, the MECO system? Yeah, yeah. An M? <laughs> it's catchy, Pretty good. It? I never thought of it. Yeah, I like it. So what was your question again? I don't know your name. Sorry. I see HKWFDR.
0: Yeah, his question was, yeah, uh, I, do, do you have a suggestion, sorry to interrupt, just to paraphrase, do you have, uh, what is your, uh, I guess, approach to to the personality? Do you view it as a singularity, as more sort of competing or complementary psych- psychological forces?
1: Well, I think that your idea of a Miko system is pretty new. I could imagine it would be pretty nuanced and pretty complex. I, for the sake of simplicity, and I hope it's not simple. Being simplistic, but for the sake of simplicity, I believe that the core of the personality is a true self, and that that true self is. I mean, it's going to sound really new age and cheesy. I don't mean it that way, but like a ball of energy within us that's that is true, that knows truth, and that that is the essence of who we are on the inside, and that because of our traumas, uh we develop other sides of ourselves that that swallow up other people's personalities, swallow up our parents' personalities, swallow up other relatives' personalities, other important people, swallow up ideas of our society, swallow up mixed up ideas. We develop defenses uh, like denial and projection and all sorts of different things that we've swallowed up inside of ourselves that, that you could say make up that ecosystem. And I, I might put But I still would differentiate that there's – I think there's two parts of us. There's the true self that's the core of who we are and always will be the core of who we are. And no matter how screwed up or messed up we or anyone gets, they've always got that core of perfect true self within them. And then there's all the other parts of them that make up that ecosystem, and that to me could all be fashioned under the Rubric of a false self. And there's a million different parts of it that interact. And it interacts with the true self. And it's very, very complex. And it's often can be very hard to sort out what is the true self, what is the false self, what is real, what is not real, what is true, what is our healthy part, what is our unhealthy part. And well, and I'm going to go back to the last the last question that Greg asked when he said, if I get joy from something in a friendship, and that's what I wanted to comment on also, is that just because we get joy out of something doesn't mean that it's healthy. So things can give joy to the false self that can actually be very unhealthy. For instance, a person shoots heroin; they're going to get high as a kite, and they're going to be feeling massive amounts of joy. But that doesn't mean their true self is feeling joy. But overall, the the color that the quote Miko system reduces to mecosystem system as I define it, as it would reduce to, would be joyous. But things that Uh, And and sometimes there's contradicting, contradicting things, things that bring joy to the true self can sometimes bring complete misery to other parts of the personality that are traumatized or false, which is why healing the process of becoming healthier is such a miserable and painful process. I feel like I saw am going off on a tangent. Is that okay? Does that make sense what I'm saying?
0: No, I think I think it does, obviously. and, And I think it complements at least the degree to which i formulate that which is that uh, the true self is like the empirical and rational self that deals with with reality but the false self is that which has had to conform to duress to threats uh, or to the threats of withdrawal from others uh, often parents or caregivers and so when we have to conform to the expectations of others we're no longer rooted in reality and empiricism and reason we're rooted in conformity to prejudice and that is a very hard thing to shake off over time
1: right and i think what you said also is the what the, the true self is is the empirical self that i don't know navigates reality or something like that i would also say the true self that that that's the intellectual side of the true self to me the emotional side is where our passion comes from where our vital essence as human beings comes from where our desire to live comes from that that comes from the the true self and the sides of our self that are messed up Uh, that's the false self, or sometimes the true self gets translated through the lenses of the false self. So the false self can be very passionate or seem very passionate, but really it's just the basic essence of us, the basic beauty of us being translated through these distorted lenses. So the passion can come out in very strange, peculiar, and sometimes even perverse ways.
0: Yeah. And, the, and and we've also talked to this show, at least about how we can only meet in reality. We can't meet in illusion. So the degree to which we believe things that are false uh, is the degree to which we, we actually can't connect in an honest and authentic way with others. So the true self is, is so valuable because it is really the only aspect of the self that is capable of sustained intimacy rather than, you know, show off itness or, or manipulation or that, you know, over sexualization or that kind of stuff. Right. Right. Now, sorry, I just wanted to check, uh, did, did we answer the, <laughs> we always go stampeding off on these planes of, of speculation, which is great, but did we actually answer the question that the, the fine gentleman had asked at the beginning? How, how do you feel? Did we, did we swing and miss, or did we, are we not even in the ballpark?
2: Uh, no, I think uh, that's, that's right on point. Thank you.
0: Excellent, excellent. And was there anything else you wanted to add or to ask, or should we uh, move on to, uh, to another caller?
2: Uh, No, I think you should move on. Uh, I'll just say very quickly that I uh, really enjoyed the conversations that you've had with him and uh, that I've enjoyed uh, checking out some of his own videos and and, uh, learning his own perspective.
0: Oh, yeah. And uh, thank you. And um, uh, one of the uh, people in the chat room has mentioned that, uh, uh, Daniel, your um, iRareSoul.com is where your DVD is available. Uh, and uh, is it uh, take these broken wings and said that he found it enormously enjoyable and is highly recommended and, and rich oh. and valuable, has recommended it to others. So I just wanted to mention that.
1: Well, how nice. That that uh, definitely gives a back rub to my insecurities. <laughs> so,
0: can, Hopefully not stimulating them and energizing them. But
1: uh, no, no, it calms them down. Thanks. Beautiful. I appreciate whoever said that.
0: Uh, that was Dave. Okay, so we have uh, obviously time for, for more questions. If you have a question for uh, for Daniel, please uh, uh, unmute and pipe up. Oh, yeah, I guess well while we're waiting for somebody to to come up with a question, uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of dreams and, and looking at nightly dreams as uh, some uh, fantastic information coming from the core, coming from the true self. What what are your approach to dreams? Do you find that stuff useful? Uh, do you find it sort of extraneous material or do you use it in your therapy at all?
3: Uh
1: therapy with myself or therapy with other people or let's not with others. Well with others, I I sometimes ask them if they're interested in looking at their dreams. Sometimes I spontaneously do if I'm curious and if about what they're doing in that part of themselves. But often people bring their dreams in anyway. And so yeah, I I use their dreams and I try to help them find out what their dreams mean. My I, I mean I Totally, do not believe that dreams are extraneous. I, I also do believe dreams come from the true self, but they're translated through the lens of the false self. So dreams are, by their very nature, metaphorical. They're not uh, straightforward and reality-based. So I think if if they came from the true self, they would not be metaphorical. And I also believe that if someone fully resolved all their traumas and no longer, theoretically, no longer had any false self they just were purely true and purely reality-based, they would have no need to dream at all.
0: Mm.
1: But I've never met anyone who's done that or, or who's been there. On the other hand, I've met people who say they don't dream at all. And I think the reason that for that is not that they don't dream at all. It's just that they're so disassociated from themselves that they are split off with any conscious memory of their dreams. And they're actually dreaming like mad. But they just don't know it. Right. So right. You now what I do when I work with patients who are um who bring dream material and it's often people will say to me, "Well, what does it mean?" Especially and this is an interesting thing. I um I recently had someone who came in for a first session and they asked me, "Uh, I had a dream. What do you think it means?" And I I I, I wouldn't be presumptuous enough to have answered them because I feel to really understand a dream or even have a remote chance at understanding what a dream really means. And dreams I think also can mean a lot of different things. I think you really have to understand the person really well and and put put them the dream is always a part of a context and the context is their whole life and their psychology and their childhood and their history. Often if I don't know someone that well I can still take a stab at it but I think that's because I'm on the pulse of people's personalities pretty well. So but but if I don't know someone at all and really don't know them I wouldn't I wouldn't be you know, presumptuous enough to think I could really get a grasp of what their dreams are, considering often I have dreams myself and it takes me a while to come to even a rudimentary understanding of what they mean. On the other hand, a lot of times I do feel like I can figure out a lot of what my dreams mean and I find them incredibly useful to me. And when I work with patients and they bring dreams in, I like to look at the therapy relationship as a collaborative relationship where both of us strive together to figure out what this dream means. But ultimately, I defer to what they think the dream means. Uh, Not only because at a deeper core level, especially unconsciously, people always know themselves better than I know them. Mm. But But at the same time, the goal of therapy in my mind is not, I mean, I said it on my website, the goal is to uncover traumas and heal. But at the same time, I feel that a profound goal in therapy is for the person who's in therapy to learn how to do it themselves to learn how to do self-therapy. So if I'm sitting there just being the, the God on high, scratching my chin and analyzing their dreams for them and doing all the work for them, and then they say, thank you, thank you. I got so much out of that. Here's your money. You deserve it. Then I feel like what I'm also subtly, subliminally telling them is that you need me to analyze your dreams. You need me to heal. And you really can't do it yourself. And I don't want that. Because I wouldn't want anyone to do that to me. I I Just like I like doing my own dream analysis. There probably are times where other people could be very useful in helping me analyze my dreams. But ultimately, I like doing it myself. And I put a lot of energy into my life into it. And some of my patients put a lot of energy into dream analysis and dream work. And other people that I work with put no energy into dream work. And that's their choice.
0: Well, it's, it's funny because people talk a lot about the subjectivity of dreams, but if you've had conversations with people exploring the metaphorical content or the life content of dreams, mm. it's hard to believe that it remains purely subjective because when you really get... A dream or at least you get a core part of a dream everybody in the conversation gets goosebumps at the same time I know that's not scientific (laughs) but it really really does occur when you get a dream I just I had one last night uh, which I thought was interesting and I was going to mention it today if the subject came up so I guess I will uh, which is that the the two different ways of looking at something in a dream right so I dreamt last night that I was swimming uh, in in the ocean with uh, and sort of gentle killer whales were surfacing with their you know huge black fins dorsal fins and it was uh, really quite beautiful and then I saw a freighter with uh, a whole bunch of black guys standing on the railing, and uh, it was a—I uh, think I saw the flag. It was a Finnish uh, freighter, and so you have killer whales, and, and you're like, what, "What on earth are these <laughs> these black Finnish sailors?" But then I thought, "Well, killer whales are black, and we have black Finnish sailors." In the way the dream is talking about two sides of the same coin right because killer whales can be thought of as black sailors with fins right black finnish sailors i mean it really is quite an amazing hmm. thing what dreams do in terms of just giving you different ways of looking at the same thing and expanding your consciousness so i just wanted to mention that i think it's really worth uh, it's really really worth uh, uh, looking into your dreams and talking about them with people we have uh, another can question. i try something can i try
1: can i try something for one second yeah, Stefan? I think you, you you'll have a laugh on this. I want to just try a hypothetical experiment. Now let's say that was my dream and I had dreamed that exact dream. I, can I interpret it for myself as if it were mine? Please. And it would this is you, you, I think you'll find this interesting. If I had that exact dream, I would say first of all, whales usually are a symbol for me of power, strength uh and um and freedom in a way. Also, a, killer whales work in pods, so it's it would be me wanting to be more socially connected, probably, and feeling alienated. Then, interestingly, uh, Finnish. I was actually writing a lot about Finland yesterday and today. You're right. I'm yeah. planning to, yes, I'm planning to go to Finland uh, in the next few months to, to study a program that is getting the best results in the whole world with people diagnosed with schizophrenia. They're getting 85% cure rates off medication. So I'm going to Finland. So I would right away say, oh, this is my hope to to go there and my anxiety perhaps about going there. and then the other thing i probably say is i'm ending my therapy practice in a month that's a, i'm finishing it so that's probably what finished really.
0: <laughs> right finished yeah that's good so, that's good so
1: that goes to show for me how it would be perhaps a completely different interpretation than what it represents for you
0: right right
1: and i could actually have that dream very easily it would be something that would make sense to me
0: right no and I, I think again i don't want to sort of dip into the whole dream thing and and but you may have slightly different symbols i think for me it is uh, i've had dreams about whales for for many years and to me they really are around the uh, the, the true self because they kind of go to the surface mm. but they can also go very deep uh, and i think that, that that sort of depth of knowledge of self-knowledge is really really important and the the saying that the two things are the same the ship and the killer whales to me is sort of like saying that the instinctual depth which self-knowledge generates, which is, as you say, sort of very complex and deep and and emotional, uh, is is in a way the same as all of the technology that we're using to have this conversation, like this ship that sails on the surface and so on. That uh, all of right. the abstractions and technology and, and complexities of how we communicate as a as a community, this is sort of the free domain radio community, um, is is not a different or distinct from that sort of self-knowledge. So communication in a community is essential for pursuing, pursuing self-knowledge, and I think that the depth is very important to the technology at the surface, and those, those two have very strong similarities. So I, that's sort of what I got out of it. But I mean, you're right, you can go six million different ways, but what I find right. is that when you get one that's really core – you do kind of get that, ooh, <laughs> you know, that kind of tingly feeling, right. which is really, uh, really helpful. But, and I hope that you will, if you yes. get a chance, uh, talk uh, to us about what, uh, what you extract from, uh, from Finland, because I think that's very, very helpful. Now, uh, sorry, we've had another question, which is, because um, uh, uh, a listener is asking, you have, of course, Daniel, have a very strong history of, of journaling. And so uh, the question is, what right. is your approach to journaling? What formats do you use? Do you keep a dream, a dream journal? An emotion journal event journal a weekly revision of writings what is your approach to to your own journaling if you don't mind talking about that
1: no i'd love to talk about it that it's it shifts from time but i have a general format that um it used to be a bit different right now my system is first thing i do when i wake up in the morning before i do anything is i roll out of bed i turn on my computer and I don't want to waste any time because when I'm first wake up i'm there's so much material in my head so much unconscious material that's right at the surface that I don't want to miss it for me, that's low hanging fruit so I keep my computer on a hibernate state so it doesn't even have to kick into Microsoft Word or anything. I press the button within five seconds, my computer's there, and I just start writing immediately. But the first thing that I write down is all my dreams and I'm actually less rigorous about it than I used to be because what I used to do is I used to wake up three or four times in the middle of the night and get on my computer and write down my dreams. I would be, you know, bleary-eyed. I'd wake up in the morning and I would sometimes have 4,000 words of dreams written down. And then the amazing thing that I discovered again and again is I'd get on the computer at the morning, I'd read my dreams, and I didn't even remember having them a lot of the time. Or I'd remember little bits of them, and I was shocked at the detail that I could gather about my dreams in the moment of writing them down at two 30 in the morning and at four 30 in the morning. But I still do that, but I don't write in the middle of the night. I don't have that level of self-discipline and I right now prefer my sleep. So I wake up, I write down my dreams. Then I go and I write a journal entry and I do it on the computer. I, I unfortunately, when I write by hand and I I do that when I'm away from my computer, I write in in a handwritten journal and I only can write, you know, what, 30 words a minute. When I type, I can type 100 words a minute. So it's just so advantageous. I can I wish I could type 200 words a minute because I can think that fast. But the limiting factor is how fast I can type. And the basic way that I write what I do for my journaling is I Study my emotional conflicts, whatever bothered me pretty much from the day before or during my night 's sleep, whatever i 'm obsessing about and and I just write about it and I try to write about my feelings and I analyze it, so I write from an emotional place, but I also write from an intellectual place, and I try to have those two overlap. I try to use my intellect to help me explore my emotions and it really varies how much I write if I have something that i 'm greatly conflicted over. I can write you know ten thousand or fifteen thousand words in a sitting, and I used to do that every day all the time i have i mean literally millions millions and millions and millions of words of journal entries Now I probably write two thousand words a day, maybe three thousand if it 's a particularly stressful time i 'm going through maybe i 'll write four thousand sometimes i 'll write five hundred words, and maybe once every two weeks now I give myself the liberty to not write in my journal. Like today, I had a lot of stuff to do. I, I, was, um, I had a lot of projects doing, and I gave myself the liberty today to not write in my journal. But I went for about three years where I never missed a day. And what I found is that it helped me profoundly. It was an incredible way to get to know myself better. And I, I consider it a cornerstone of my self-therapy process, if not the cornerstone. And then what I do is after I've written out All of my just general journaling. Then I go back to my dreams that I've written down and I analyze them line by line, often or sometimes clause by clause, and sometimes even word by word. And I allow myself to free associate. Whatever comes to my mind, I write it down. And then after I free associated, I analyze it and I try to make sense of what the dream means. And usually by the end of the dream, I have formulated some understanding of what this dream means, what it represents to me and why I dreamed it. And does that mean that I'm correct? I don't think so. I think it, I, I, I aim to being as close to correct as possible, but but the point is, I think just studying the dream brings me closer to my unconscious and helps me unravel stuff. And if sometimes I have a wonderful aha moment, like sometimes I dream numbers, I'll have number or I'll see a sign on the wall that has numbers on it. And I'll remember the numbers and I'll write them down. And I I've had it where I've remembered an old friend's telephone number and it's been on the wall in a dream. And I haven't thought of the number in 10 years. It's like, and it's amazing that I was thinking about that person and then I have to analyze why was I thinking about that person? There's sometimes a profound stuff like things like that in my dreams that I'm able to tease out through analysis. And often it's more mundane. And then there's lots of stuff sometimes that I really have no clue. And I just take a stab at it and guess and then move on and, don't really go back and think about it too much. But another thing I use my journaling for is often I'll I'll go back and read a journal entry I wrote a year ago, like, or, or now that I've written, I've been writing in my journal for 20 years, I'll go back and read. What was I doing 15 years ago today? Where was my head at? And it's a fascinating experience because I'll go back and read an entry that I never looked at since the day I wrote it. And so I could go back and see what was I doing the last day of January, 1995. And You know, where was I? I was actually then I was um, I was living in St. Thomas in the Caribbean and I I could go back and see where my head was. at. And sometimes it's it's very painful to see that. Sometimes it's very touching. Sometimes I'm really surprised to see how insightful I was 15 years ago and I didn't realize how insightful I was. And sometimes I'm shocked to see how unhealthy I was 15 years ago, for example. So this is another thing I, I love keeping records of my journals. And after I handwrite stuff into my handwritten journals, if I'm away from my computer, I often go back in later and type it down. So there's actually a digital record of it that's very easy for me to access. So there is, I just went off on quite the tangent there. But um, that, that's sort of my answer to personally how I use journaling.
0: Well, that's uh, that's great. Uh, I used to journal a lot more, um, certainly since, uh, you know, the uh, the baby cakes came along. Uh, it's uh, It's quite a challenge. I do view... Um, podcasting to some degree is journaling because I'm trying to be as honest about my thoughts and feelings uh, as I can be. Uh, And that's a kind of journaling, but I wouldn't say it's exactly the same. But uh, uh, I found that the most fruitful time, most fruitful kind of journaling for me, and this probably comes out of my artistic experience as a a playwright, as as an actor, was uh, to to have debates right so you know how you have these arguments in your head i just found you know assign the different aspects of yourself in a sense names or if you can be that self-empathetic let them assign themselves names and and actually write out the dialogue like you're writing out a a play or a screenplay and uh, i found that was a great way to bring an incredible amount of wisdom that was buried below a kind of self-indifference to the surface and has really really helped to, to guide and, and really raise my self-esteem. The more that you um, get a sense of your own wisdom and depth, the, the stronger your self-esteem. And you, you, you get kind of bulletproof after a while, once you've been right about things a lot uh, and uh, I didn't even know it beforehand, you get a great sense of self-guidance and a great sense of self-trust. And uh, I think that is a, a very, very powerful thing that comes out of that yep. kind of uh, self-exploration.
1: And probably a lot of internal autonomy
0: also. Tell me what you mean.
1: And I said also probably a lot of internal autonomy.
0: Oh yeah, no, I got the words. I'm just uh, if you could explain what you mean a bit.
1: Oh, that by doing that kind of dialogue with yourself, you function in a role. Well, I, I to use that analogy, you function in the in a role as a therapist for yourself, and it could be very self-soothing. But also, I would imagine you gain a strength at. Um, being there for yourself and knowing how to work out your own issues. I, and I'll say more in the context of myself. I found that the result of journaling, I become much more of an autonomous person. I find that I don't spontaneously need to lean on people in quite the same way I used to. And, I, and I, not that I think it's necessarily bad to lean on people in all cases, because I do believe we're we're social creatures. I like to compare, uh, to, to contrast humans to orangutans, where orangutans, they go and live in the jungle for You know, 51 months a year and then one month a year they come out and they mate with each other and then they go back and they live in complete solitude for 51 months a year. Humans aren't built that way. I don't think our brains are structured that way. I really think we do need to be massively interconnected with each other and yet some people over rely on that interconnection in ways that they should be gaining more autonomy with themselves. And I think that that's where things like journaling or using forms of inner dialogue or self-reflecting or analyzing one's dreams can help a person become optimally autonomous.
0: Right, right. No, and I think this is is why this technology is so amazing because I think throughout most of human history, the drive towards authenticity was like it it created a kind of moat between yourself and those around you who very often were invested in quite the opposite of authenticity and self-knowledge, whereas the sort of we have beams that can join the stars in the night sky of those who are pursuing self-knowledge. We do have at least some technology that can allow us to have a community. um, Whereas I think Mm. beforehand it would be much more isolating uh, particularly for people who aren't, say, in New York or, or where I am, where there's more people of like-mindedness yeah. around. But people, like I get messages from people who grew up in small towns in Nebraska and so on. And I think that self-knowledge would have been, you know, you'd have been like Boo, Boo Radley in a, in a run-down run, run house with nobody talking right. to you. Whereas now I think you do have more options for conversation, uh, however imperfect they may be at technological arm's length. You have more options for conversation. And I think that raises the attractiveness of authenticity and self-knowledge uh, higher than it was previously.
1: I would totally agree. Imagine uh, 800 years ago, where there weren't even books available.
0: Right, right.
1: Where would a person get new ideas? Maybe from hearing a, you know, a priest give a sermon, if the priest was any good, and that would be it. There was, I mean, now it, it really is a this this phenomenon is of, of the technological expansion is is psychologically
0: revolutionary. Yeah, I think so. It's as important as the printing press. All right. Uh, I think we have uh, another question floating around if you would like to, um, uh, to ask it. Oh, questionnaire.
3: Uh, yeah, I have a, a question for Daniel about something he said earlier about, uh, dreams. Okay. Uh, you, you mentioned earlier that when someone doesn't, uh, usually remember their dreams that you think that they have, uh, like a very strong disconnect from the self, so much so that, uh, they don't even retain the memories of the dreams that they're having. uh, Could you go more into that and what you think someone might be able to do if they're interested in analyzing their dreams but are having trouble remembering the dreams in order to be able to do that? Right. Yeah. Um, I'm going to give an
1: answer from an odd angle first. That um, I'm just going to wait until that phone finishes ringing. That here's a fascinating thing. I've had the opportunity to work with a lot of people who are diagnosed with schizophrenia, and they often can be so split off from their inner conscious sense of self that they don't even realize they have a self. And what I've seen pretty universally is when people are pretty severely in quote-unquote schizophrenic states, they have absolutely no dream recall. And instead, they're going in a sort of opposite way. And they're living their entire life is a dream and it's usually a nightmare, but their conscious waking life is like a dream. They're hearing, they're, they're hearing voices. They're seeing things. They're having smell hallucinations. They're having touch hallucinations and they can be living in a very delusional sort of reality. And what I've observed with, with these people is when they start reconnecting with themselves, their selves on the inside, their true self, they start becoming aware of them themselves as a person, and they start coming out of their delusional world and they start having fewer hallucinations. Often, what happens is they start remembering their dreams. And I've seen this with many people, and it's a fascinating phenomenon. Now, that doesn't mean that just because someone is not remembering their dreams, therefore they have schizophrenia, but I think there's lots of different reasons that someone might have no dream recall. I know people that take certain medications that just blocks them from remembering their dreams. And it's not just like psychiatric medications, sometimes certain pain medications or certain people, um, with alcohol or, or sometimes even just completely physical medications. But, and then I know other people that when they take certain medications, their dreams go through the roof and they're remembering tons of dreams. And they're having vivid dreams or they're having extremely violent or extremely sexual dreams that they were not previously ha- having. But, um, I think that if someone is having difficulty remembering their dreams, there are a lot of things that they can do to improve their dream recall. I know that i've even heard some um nutritionists and certain psychiatrists say there's certain vitamins I forget vitamin b twelve maybe don't 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 quote me on it, but gives gives a person much more vivid dreams and dramatically imp- improves dream recall and I think another thing is um if a person can discipline themselves. To wake up in the middle of the night and write down their dreams, often they will have dream recall, where in the morning they'll have none. And if a person wants to try this as an experiment, drink two big glasses of water before you go to bed. You'll wake up at three o'clock in the morning having to go to the bathroom, and often there will be a dream there. Whereas if they sleep the whole night through, often there won't be a dream. So that's one possibility. But I would just say, in general, and there's probably exceptions to this is that people who are more generally more emotionally disconnected with themselves um generally have less dream recall or then there's an exception to this and i think there's an irving Yalom. he's a famous uh therapist who does a lot of interesting writing I, I don't know if you guys have heard of him but he writes a study uh, or he writes a an experience he had working with a patient who was very very emotionally disconnected but had a profoundly amazing ability to recall his dreams in vivid detail but the exception with this man who remembered his dreams in vivid detail but was emotionally connected is that he had absolutely no understanding of what his dreams might mean metaphorically and i think also had not much interest in it either but he did remember the dreams but it was a window into his emotional world that he did slowly become curious about so i Want to be careful being too black and white in my theory about why people don't remember their dreams. I'd say it's probably I'm speaking more in broad brushstrokes.
0: Yalom is he the guy who wrote uh, Love's Executioner?
1: He wrote Love's Executioner. He wrote um, he wrote a few uh, uh, novels and he wrote the famous uh, standard text for group therapy.
0: Yeah, he's a very very good uh, therapeutic writer. Highly highly recommended.
1: Good, good writer, what i've heard from people who know him is that he's also incredibly incredibly narcissistic, like it's all about himself times a hundred
0: <laughs> well you know we we also, don't necessarily have to have the lung doctor not smoke in order to take his advice, right, although it generally is a little better if he doesn't but
1: uh... right and and yet I remember when I first became a therapist, I read almost everything he had written up to that time. And, Found it very helpful to me because he's a very clear writer and he's also engaging so many therapeutic writers are so incredibly boring that it's like they get into this technically jargon detail that's just so inaccessible that makes you just want to go to sleep yalom on the other y-a-l-o-m he is uh, he, he's definitely an exception
0: right right did uh, that answer the uh the question oh fine listener of ours
3: uh I mean it did answer it somewhat. The the main reason I asked is over the last 4 to 6 months or so I've been doing a lot of uh I guess you could call it self-therapy along with the help of a couple of friends of mine. And I really do think at this point I'm becoming more emotionally connected with myself. I mean, I'll sometimes wake up in the morning and like feel miserable about things that before I would have repressed and stuff like that. Uh you know, I, I do feel like I'm becoming more emotionally connected and I hadn't really thought about the dream thing until recently. But, I mean, I almost never remember my dreams when I wake up. And when you said that that seems to indicate a disconnect, that kind of threw up a red flag in my head. Like, is there some sort of progress I'm failing to make or something I'm missing that I need to hit in order to uh, be able to remember those dreams?
1: Right. And this is also the risk, again, with, as with the previous question, is when I start saying that, it can very easily come across that I am imposing my analytical judgment on you. and. I don't want to do that because I I don't know you or your story. And if I across the board say the reason that you are or or anybody is not remembering their dreams in the morning is because they're emotionally disconnected. I would I would feel disgusted with myself if I was wrong and I could be wrong because there could be a lot of other things going on. But for instance, this morning, I was actually under a lot of stress and I remembered a fragment of one dream but i just was like i got so much to do i got so much work to do i didn't write it down and for the life of me an hour later i couldn't remember that dream and does that mean that i was emotionally disconnected or could it mean that i just had a lot of other stuff in my mind that i wasn't going to that deep quiet place in myself that i need to go to have dream recall and i was i was emotionally connected to other stuff but i also know when i put a lot of effort and I really made it a top priority to remember my dreams to the point of waking up several times in the middle of the night. Uh, I got dreams every single night for years in a row. and that. But that's just me. And so, again, I speak with broad brushstrokes. But so if you take it for you as a red flag that you don't remember your dreams in the morning or don't always remember your dreams in the morning, I would say take it as a red flag. Hypothetically, but it might not be that. And and I just think that this is something that I definitely don't want people ever to do with my writing or my website or what I talk about is to take what I'm saying and using it to beat themselves up. So don't take the flag and beat yourself up with it. It's my fear.
0: I must say that because it's, really uh, it's quite delightful for me uh, as, a, as a host because, and Daniel, this may be your first genuine exposure to a philosophical crowd. But it's quite absolutely delicious for me to hear somebody else put forward a principle and then have someone else come up with an exception because really that's 95% of philosophy. So it's just really, really nice for somebody else to be taking the universal bullets at the moment. So I really appreciate that. <laughs>
1: Right, and I also find it interesting that that I mean I think if so, let's say someone here's just a funny experiment if someone paid me a thousand dollars to go through my entire website and to rip apart my own theory for me to do it and to come up with exceptions to it and prove exactly how I'm wrong I think I could I could write a whole book on how my theory is incorrect and I think I'd be correct in in my finding exceptions to it so in that way it's like yeah I'm trying to write about truth but Truth can sometimes be a nebulous thing for me, or perhaps for anyone to pin down. That said, I don't want to get lost in, entirely just trying to pick apart my point of view, and I want to just get out stuff that I believe is essentially true, right. maybe if, even if there are exceptions to it.
0: No, I, I think that's right, and uh, you've, you've got to plant your flag somewhere in order to start a journey. You have right. to have a starting point, even if it's not perfect, it's a place to start. And philosophically, mm-hmm. there is a, a huge difference between self-knowledge and all other kinds of knowledge, which is really the difference between you know, relativism and Aristotelianism, or scientific the scientific approach to reality, that when you understand The lower intestine, you have not changed the lower intestine. In fact, if it changed due to your understanding, you would never actually achieve understanding of it. When you can correctly classify the difference biologically between uh, a mammal and a reptile, you have not changed anything in reality. You have simply conformed your own thinking to reflect accurately the, the realities that are out there. However, when you learn something about yourself, you change yourself. And this is why it is an endlessly absorbing and sometimes it feels like you're falling through an endless series of chasms into yourself. To observe the thing is to change the thing, and that is very different from the empirical, external, rational approach that we take to understanding you know, geography and science, you know, physics, biology, and so on. We do not genuinely, although there are some scientific experiments, particularly in the realm of physics, where the observation changes the thing being observed, but that really is the exception. But with self-knowledge, when we learn or understand something about ourself, we are no longer the self before we understood that. And that's why it can uh, – and people who take a lot of internal – Uh, knowledge, like they go for self-knowledge, they end up really kind of in a postmodern relativistic point of view, because that does apply to self-knowledge. But the philosophy is really around finding that balance between the subjectivity and constant change of internal knowledge versus the objectivity and rationality of external knowledge. Those those are two classifications of thinking that can be confusing to people, and just wanted to differentiate that.
1: Wow. (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty intense. (laughs)
0: Good. Good. Okay. Well, let's, uh, let's leave that there and see if we have other questions. I certainly have a few floating around in my own, uh, exceedingly <laughs> bald noggin, but uh, we'll see if other people have, uh, have questions to, uh, to ask Daniel, if you'd like to speak up now, that would be great.
1: Can I share a funny story for one second first? So I went to a haircutter for a long time who I really like. And I oddly, I, I admire this man. He's, um, he, he's something that I aspire to be, which is extremely straightforward. There's no, no jabber. There's no side talk. There's, there's no mixed motivations. He just says it. So I asked him one day, I said, when he was cutting my hair, I said, let me ask you this. His name is Pepino. I said, Pepino, am I going bald? And he said, Oh, he said, I never, I never tell my customers if they're going bald or not. And I said, why? He says, because, because he says, because if they are going bald and I tell them they're going bald, they never come back again. <laughs> and, and I said, I said, Oh, I, I said, so what if they're not going bald? You still don't tell them? He says, as a general principle, I do not tell them. But what's interesting is Pepino often has questions about psychology for me when I go, he knows I'm a therapist, and he respects me for it. He really, he stores up questions for two months before he sees me. Next. So I told him, I said, Pepino, I need to let you know, he's, he's 20 years old with me. I said, Pepino, you have to understand, I really know myself well. I don't have a lot of insecurities about my body. This doesn't bother me at all. And I'm a therapist. I really have a lot of self-knowledge and I have a lot of confidence in myself. And I'm not insecure about this. So I'm really just not asking you with any self-hatred or anything attached to it. And this is about three years ago I asked him this. I said, I'm just asking you, is it just a general factual question? Am I going bald? And I said, so you're not going to lose me as a customer. There's no stress about it. I said, so I I would help me if you could answer, because I can't ask very many other people this. He says, okay, Daniel, I trust you. He says, I need to let you know you actually are starting to go bald. And in about five years, you're gonna have a you know more significant bald spot. Well, my heart dropped. I <laughs> right. couldn't handle Screw
0: self-knowledge, I, I want Red Pitt's hair. I, <laughs> I,
1: I couldn't handle it. I didn't go back and see him for two years. Right. Right. And I ran into him on the street one day. He goes, where have you been? I said, I said, Peppino, you were right. You knew me better than I knew myself. I couldn't handle it when you told me I was going bald. So I found it really interesting that I actually was much more insecure about it than I ever thought I would be. And he knew me, and he knew the psychology of baldness better than I did, and I found that fascinating.
0: Yeah, well, for me, so, it anyways, started I around was... the age of 17, so I've had some time to get used to it. But I do oh, remember yeah. one time, you know, there's, there's these bits in life where you remember that you've turned a corner, you know, and, and for those of us uh, a little older, there's, you know, that bit where you're not quite the sprightly young man that you used to be. And I remember mine very, very clearly when, when I was in my 20s, and I went to late 20s. I think um, I went to my barber and uh, I said, you know, the Oop, usual. And he said, well, I can't do much about the top, but perhaps I can trim your ears. And it's like, well, I guess I'm not a teenager anymore. I, I'm bald and I have hair growing out of my ears. What has happened to me? Uh, youth, it flees. Anyway, that's a good story, though. Uh, let's just see if we have any anyone who's been holding off. Otherwise, I'll uh, pepper a question in or two. Okay. Um, so one of the, um, from the people who've had a look at your uh, website, Daniel, the, one of the questions that has come up, uh, is around uh, masturbation. And, uh, you know, we have, uh, some single guys who know how to use computers. So I guess we can say that technically we may have a fairly spank happy crowd, uh, who perhaps read with some dismay your, uh, your perspectives or opinions upon uh, masturbation. I was wondering if you could, uh, flesh them out.
1: Oh, brother, I'll try to quote unquote flesh it out. Um, <laughs> It's a funny thing because uh, gosh I, I I don't know how, how openly have people discussed masturbation on free domain radio before not that it should affect me but it's always just a sort of a
0: I don't think it's been you know, a, a particular topic um, but uh, well let's go but for let's it. you know why not you and, know I mean we, we try to have okay. no frontiers of knowledge here and of course masturbation is something that is a pretty universal human activity there are some uh, and and non-human activity as well uh, there are some particularly for men in terms of testicular and prostate health there are some particular benefits too to masturbation right. um and uh, so as a sort of fairly universal human activity uh, i don't think it should be beyond the pale uh, we're not catholics right so it shouldn't be beyond the pale of discussion i think uh, but and since okay, you've no, written no, no. about I'll, it I'll, i thought uh, it would be worthwhile having the conversation
1: right well interesting first that you bring up uh, about um masturbation as being healthy for men who get older in terms of preventing prostate cancer and i've talked to some older guys who's Whose urologist had told them, Yeah, you need to masturbate fairly regularly. It's definitely good for you. But so I'm not going to address that here. I'm talking more in an emotional sense that my attitude, and this is where I get pretty extreme, and I don't know very many people that are going to agree with me here, but uh, so be it. That um, first of all, I believe that uh, our human sexuality is an inherent part of all of us and yet i think that in our modern world where people are so traumatized where the norm is so traumatized where even the healthiest people remain very very traumatized and we live in a world that's so incredibly sexualized in so many ways that so much of our emotional disturbances and our unmet needs and our longings in life that are really are emotionally based get played out through the sexual lens that happens both in terms of sexual interaction with other people and in sexual fantasy that can play out through masturbation. And I believe that it's not that masturbation is inherently a bad thing because that, that really to me is too black and white, but that, because I, I also think there are cases where people who don't masturbate at all because they're so repressing parts of themselves. And I think for them, for those people, masturbation can be a step in a healthier direction. So, for instance, like I've been on some Mormon websites and I've talked to Mormons and other, some other religious people who are – it's just like so prohibited to masturbate. And it's such a awful stigmatized thing to masturbate that for those people, learning how to masturbate and learning to find pleasure in that way can actually be very, very healthy and can definitely be a resolution to some of their perverted behavior, sexually perverted behavior. And, but on the other hand, I think that learning how to masturbate and masturbating regularly or even f- frequently or infrequently is not be all and end all to emotional health just like I don't think sexual interaction with a partner is the be all and end all to emotional health at all. Because I think our real goal as people is to resolve our traumas. That's the internal goal that I believe the core of our true self desperately wants. So I'll state that as a universal, that consciously or unconsciously, and I think for most of us, it's unconsciously, but the healthier we get, it becomes more of a conscious purpose. We desire to work out our traumas to grow, to heal, and to manifest our true selves. And I think that that sexual acting out or sexual expression, when people have not resolved their traumas, always carries some degree of playing out our unmet needs and our desperate desire to be loved through a sexual lens. And I think that happens both in terms of sexual interaction and in terms of masturbation. Now, often, I think that masturbation is healthier than sexually interacting with a partner, because when we start sexually interacting with a partner and we still have unresolved issues, we're still actually playing out our desire to get our unmet childhood needs met by another person. And I think that can be very damaging to a relationship. And I think actually it inherently is damaging to a relationship and it's damaging to a person's relationship with their own self. But that doesn't mean that it, feels bad to people sometimes it feels really good and a lot of people a, a lot of couples bond over their sexual relationship so it feels good to them and so what i i say now probably will come across as just reactionary or ludicrous to them but so i think for those people masturbation is healthier because it's actually not it's not playing these things out in actual interaction so it's not damaging relationships so of course masturbating can damage relationships. I think if people are masturbating in their fantasy about their people that are close to them in their lives, and those people don't know they're masturbating, you know, fantasizing about them, I think it can be quite damaging to a relationship. But I think ultimately, masturbation can prevent a person from having the deepest connection with himself or herself. But I also think the answer is not necessarily simply not to masturbate. Because I think for some people, that creates, creates a whole host of other problems. I think it can create too much anxiety. It can you know, create all sorts of other stresses and frustrations and pains in their life that they may not be able to tolerate. So in a way, masturbation is sort of like an antidepressant that helps keep some people stable. Now, I don't advocate antidepressants, but I know for some people they call them a lifesaver because they can't handle living without them. And I think for some people, masturbation functions in that way. So it's not necessarily black and white, but I still am quite skeptical about masturbation. And I, I so I don't know if I've answered that
0: all that well. No, I think, I think that was good. And I, you know, I appreciate that. Uh, it's not uh, always the easiest topic to to talk about, but no, I, I certainly think that that was a, right. a very good, uh, a very good explanation of where you're coming from.
1: And to give a little bit more on it also, um, I think masturbation often can mean very different things in general for men versus women. I know a lot of women who say they don't masturbate at all or that they've never really gotten much pleasure out of masturbation. I know other women who say they masturbate regularly and get a lot of pleasure out of it and have a lot of orgasms through masturbation and actually only have orgasms through masturbation. And if it worked for masturbation, they wouldn't even know what an orgasm was. Uh, On the other hand, I know men who probably a far majority of men who have told me about it that they masturbate to pornography and they masturbate to internet porn, even when they're in a relationship with someone else, whether it's a gay relationship or a straight relationship. And I personally am very against pornography. I think it's incredibly disrespectful to the people who are having uh, the photographs or the videos taken of them. But I also think it's very unhealthy for the people who are looking at that and masturbating to it, I think it's it really creates a very distorted sense of human interaction, and I think it it inherently is violating to people so it's complicated it's like i um I think the world would be better off if there was no pornography at all, mm. but i I also know that there are statistics that when pornography is banned that people tend to, that rape rates go up and other men do all sorts of horrible things when they're now masturbating to pornography. On the other hand, I know a lot of women who tell me they know that their boyfriends and their husbands, who they are having sex with at times, still masturbate to internet pornography. And a lot of them say they feel like they're being cheated on by their boyfriends and their husbands. And they don't say it to their boyfriends or husbands all that often, but they don't like it. And they, you know, they find the porn on the computer and they know what their boyfriend's doing. And they know that, you know, he's having relationships with all these anonymous women on the Internet, you know, who've had photographs taken of them and had videos taken of them. And it's, it can be very hurtful to people. I also know gay people who say they know their, their boyfriends who are cheating on them with Internet porn and, you know, masturbating to it all the time. And and I don't think anybody feels good about it, knowing that their partner is is having a relationship with Internet porn off to the side. So these are just lots and lots of ideas I'm having.
0: Right. And and certainly, I mean, without a doubt, I think it's fair to say that um, that uh, pornography is very much an outside in view to sexuality, uh, in that obviously you don't know the people and it is really very much around the, the stimulation of the visual without any real sense of the purpose of the person. And in fact, if you sort of go into what the person is probably experienced to end up on your screen in that way, uh, it's I think pretty hard to maintain an arousal. So I think there is a kind of dissociation involved in that. It has
1: to be. Yeah. I think if you emotionally really were able to emotionally connect with the people who are the subjects of the, um, of the pornography who are being paid or not paid to expose themselves in various ways. I think if a person emotionally connected to them, there would be no way to get aroused. I had a conversation with a relative of mine over the summer who told me, I think, I mean, it it was the most primitive conversation where he said that he, he thinks that women, some women who are prostitutes actually do it because they love sex and they really like being, you know, they, they, they like selling their bodies to men. And I asked him, well, how would you feel, um, you know, would, would you enjoy it if someone paid you a hundred dollars, some big fat, sweaty guy paid you a hundred dollars to have oral sex on him? And he goes, Oh, but 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 I'm not gay, that's not the issue. I said, Okay, so how would you feel if some you know unpleasant looking, you know, sweaty woman is paying you a hundred dollars to have oral sex on her? And he said, Oh, but that's totally different. That's not and I said, Well, how is it? You know, I mean I don't I asked him, I said, How many prostitutes have you talked to? I said, I never met one that said she really loved the sex. They, they they pretend to, but even even the ones that can get certain pleasure out of it, deep down they feel very degraded by it. And it's it's and if they had something better going for them, they wouldn't be doing it. And what I see with women that that have engaged in pornography and in terms of being subjects of it, being paid to be porn, you know, to um, have people take their pictures and videos of them, and women who have been prostitutes, is that almost universally there's a history of sexual abuse with these women. Sometimes, at first, they're not aware of it. They're replicating their histories of sexual abuse. But often, when they start getting into their deeper histories, they find that there was a lot of sexual abuse in their history. Because someone who was not sexually abused would not spontaneously want to disrobe for complete strangers. And that that would just be far too uncomfortable.
0: Right. And it would and be disgusting. There is, a, there is a, a, in almost all cases, at least that I am certainly no expert in, in what I've um, we had a debate some years ago here that was quite explosive for people around around prostitution. And uh what, what I came up with was that there is almost always a history of sexual abuse. And in more than 85 percent of the cases, there is an, a current history of drug abuse, because I don't think that you can do something that exploited and shameful without drugging yourself into near oblivion. And I think those two combinations of things is uh, uh, is something that's that you have to sort of avoid if you're um, uh, exposed to that material.
1: I totally agree with you. makes makes total sense to me.
0: Now, uh, sorry, that, that having been said, I mean, the, the argument from the other side, which is not to say that it's, it's a sort of moral argument or whatever, but I've sort of thought from time to time that, um, you know, we, we have, uh, in a sense, I mean, more than two selves. But we have kind of two selves. We have a self that is a, sort of in a higher and abstract, and, and I think that's very, very good and very important. But we are... Um, we are also animals. And what, what we come uh, with uh, as as animals, as mammals, is that um, we are uh, sexually excited by looking at sexual acts. And that, to me, makes entire biological sense, right? And this is all through the animal kingdom that, uh, that um, chimpanzees and orangutans and apes, when they see sexual acts being performed, it's, it's generally the case. They don't exactly rent hotel rooms in Borneo, Uh, then there will be a sexual excitation from the visual stimulation of watching a sexual act. Uh, I don't think that means that that people are sort of corrupt or evil or nasty or degraded or broken or anything like that. But there is a a physiological response, I think, to viewing a sexual act that uh, is obviously not what we're designed for because viewing a sexual act when we were – I guess evolving was pretty rare uh, just in the same way that, that sweets or honey or sugar were very rare but now it's right kind on. of all around us and I think it's thrown the balance uh, really off from what we were biologically kind of programmed to do which was react to sexual acts with sexual excitation because we would hope to get you know, procreation out of that somehow if things were more sort of masked But uh, I think it's really um, uh, a a sort of a tuning fork that was developed for a very faint sound is now constantly being bashed against the wall. And I think that creates quite a distortion.
1: I I wouldn't disagree with you there. I also, I I guess I I would present a hypothetical in reply because I do agree with what you're saying. Um, And I don't know to what degree we really are sexual beings because I think we – as a species right now and individuals are so traumatized and are so and it's risky to say this, but we're so um disconnected from our inherent nature, assuming we have an inherent nature. So my hypothetical that I would put is if there were such a thing as a person who were untraumatized, who was raised and in a way that he or she was totally connected with him or herself, what would that person's sexuality look like? And mm-hmm my guess in reply to that hypothetical question is that the sexuality the person would have would be so 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 profoundly much less than the sexuality that we see from the average person nowadays now of course there are people on the other extreme who are so traumatized that they've just totally split off their sexual self and they just have like no sexuality and i think those people would become more sexual but I think the average person in our society who is hypersexualized, which a lot of us are, I think that that person, if they worked out their traumas, would just inherently become much, much less sexual to the point that I think that if they were going to masturbate, maybe they'd masturbate once every three months, once a month or maybe less than that. They, they wouldn't have that much desire for sex.
0: Just a personal opinion. No, and I, I, think, I think you can elevate that uh, scientifically uh, somewhat above a personal opinion insofar as the research that I was doing. And when I talked to Dr. Felitti, who's head of the ACL study through Kaiser Permanente. That uh, hypersexuality or promiscuity is directly correlated with sexual with, with not just sexual but child abuse trauma that uh, excessive sexuality promiscuity is a form of self medication for uh, damage done to the brain through early exposure to to trauma so uh, for sure, if children were raised in a more healthy manner, the hypersexuality would have no uh, mouth to hook into, so to speak, uh, so I think right. it 's more than just an opinion. I think there 's some really really good scientific right. backing for that.
1: And I also think when I say hypersexual, I'm not t- talking about the top 1% of people that are hypersexual. I mean, I talk to, to guys sometimes who masturbate 10 times a day, and they're 45 years old. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the norm. And I think the norm is
0: hypersexualized. And, no, and I, I agree with you. The culture as a whole okay. is, is hypersexualized, for sure.
1: Yes. And um, anyways, okay, so...
0: All right. No, that's great. Uh, And and I would also include the hypersexuality, not just in terms of, you know, TNA, butts and cleavage and all that kind of stuff, but the fetishization, the the over fetishization of physical beauty, uh, I think, is uh, another form of hypersexuality because we are trained to respond to that somewhat biologically and somewhat culturally. Mm. To respond right. to those sort of even features and high eyebrows and, and clear skin and lustrous hair and all that kind of stuff. We're kind of programmed to respond to that in a quasi-sexual manner. And uh, it's something that I remember when I was uh, an actor, of the degree to which uh, the women who weren't fitting that mold uh, did have some despair about their potential success uh, as actresses, because that really is uh, what we consider to be quality. So anyway, I want to make sure that we get on to the next uh, question. If there are any, otherwise I'll pepper a few more and I really do appreciate your time. Oh, I also wanted to just check in Daniel. I mean, how I, you said you had a lot of stuff to do today. I don't want to monopolize your, your time uh, for, I worked I hard
1: and I did it. So I'm we're, we're good until six o'clock. Is that it?
0: Oh, that's exactly. Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to double check. I don't want to keep talking. Um, You've got one foot out the door or something.
1: No, no, I'm I'm I scheduled this until six o'clock for myself. Fantastic. If, if you want me here, assuming.
0: Oh, absolutely. I'm I'm certainly enjoying it, and I'm 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 really appreciating your your responses. So uh, let's just pause and see if uh, uh, if there's uh, anybody who has uh, questions that they'd either like to type into or uh, speak up uh, through Skype. Don't forget to uh, unmute yourself. <laughs> Oh, yes. OK. So um, I'm sure that uh, you uh, were not. Uh, I'm sure that you expected this question to some degree, but uh, there was some surprise. And, and you and I talked about this a little bit privately, but uh, obviously it's better if you talk about it here. Uh, as Some people were surprised to hear of your choice of celibacy. And uh, oh, yeah. that that I think is something that is is surprising to a lot of people. And, uh, it's, I think it's important for them to understand the context in which you've, you've made that choice. Uh, uh, and, uh, if you could talk a little bit about uh, how that came about and the benefits that you've, you've experienced, I think that would be very interesting to people.
3: Sure.
1: Uh, well, I've been celibate now, actually it's almost 11 years and, and what I, celibacy is again, sort of a nebulous term because I haven't been completely celibate from master from masturbation for 11 years, but I have not been sexually involved with anyone for um eleven years, and what happened I guess I'll say it i don't know if people know, but i'm I'm actually heterosexual and i um, I had a lot of girlfriends in my past I had a lot of wild sexual stuff happen in my past in my adult life that is and and also I was to varying degrees sexually abused as a kid and and from different sources and in different ways and a lot of it was emotional incest but what happened to me is that in my sexual romantic relationships from my teen years through my 20s um i i had a lot of fun i had a lot of good relationships with women but i also started realizing by about age 22, 23, that I was engaging in certain repeated patterns in my relationships that I didn't like. And they didn't, the relationships often didn't end well in certain ways. And I found that I, I started, I didn't, I didn't really have any sort of psychological framework for understanding this. But all I knew is that I didn't feel good about myself as the result of a lot of what I was doing. And I started also realizing that even though I didn't feel good about myself, I would do it again. And it's nothing like horrible or crazy. I wasn't I wasn't sexually abusing anybody, but I was hurting people. I was hurting certain women in certain ways. I was leading them on in certain ways. I was being emotionally seductive. um, And there was there was a sexual element in the emotional seduction. And also what I realized is that I was really hurting my self-esteem. I felt like, I, am I allowed to curse on here, by the way? Uh,
0: yeah, by all means.
1: Okay, I felt like a piece of shit about a lot of what I did afterward. The next day, the next week, I felt rotten about myself. And I couldn't look myself in the eye. And yet, then I'd do it again. And it wasn't extreme stuff. It was subtle. And it was a lot of the stuff that my friends were doing and they'd feel bad about it, And then they'd eh, they'd move on. They didn't care. But I did care. And I just couldn't tolerate it. And what happened is the last serious girlfriend that I had that I was sexually involved with, it ended in much the same way. And I don't want to go into too much detail. And and I don't even think it's necessarily necessary. But the way that it ended emotionally, I just felt like I can't keep doing this. And I was getting emotionally healthier in a lot of ways. And I looked myself in the mirror and I was just like, you know, I knew I had a lot of gifts as a human being, gifts as a person. And I had a lot to offer people in relationships, and I felt that I was misusing my gifts by by playing them out in an interactive sexual way with other people. And so for a while, after my last relationship, it wasn't even like I said, I'm going to become celibate now, and I've taken a vow. I just stopped hitting on women for a while, and I stopped chasing after women, and I stopped using my interactive gifts to get women into relationships with me and to get them into bed with me. And what I discovered, and it wasn't even like this was such a conscious process, but what I discovered is that I started feeling better about myself. And so I stopped doing it more and more. It was the same reason I stopped drinking alcohol and stopped smoking pot. I just felt better about myself. And over time, a year turned into two years, turned into three years. And I I was never saying I will never date again and I'll never be in a relationship again. All I said to myself is if I'm going to date again and if I'm going to be in a relationship again, it's going to be different. And I started and I still did date. I've dated in the last 11 years. It just didn't get actually got physical with one person, but it never went that far. And that was only one person in 11 years. And what I found is that my self-esteem went up dramatically and I started developing really deep and wonderful friendships with women in a way that I'd never had that before. And that was so valuable to me. Some of my closest friends in the world are women, and I can't tell you how much I treasure them as friends. Also, once I became a therapist, a very interesting thing happened because I had a lot of female patients, and a lot of them were young and pretty female patients. And I came at the therapeutic relationship in a totally different way than I used to approach women who were young and pretty. There was no seduction on my part at all. Sometimes they were seductive toward me, but I wasn't playing that at all. And instead, I started listening to them and seeing life through their eyes and through their feelings. And I started empathizing with them and with other women in an entirely different way. And suddenly what I found is the my desire for sex for them went way, way down. And it wasn't that I lost my heterosexuality because I have retained my heterosexuality, but it just feels very different. And and a lot of times, even with a, women, a woman I know could be very physically attractive to me and on a physical level is attractive to me, I don't feel any desire to... Push a sexual relationship, and instead, what I find is that the friendship develops, and that my self esteem grows and i I just don 't do anything that i 'm really regretting and as a result of that, I just feel so much better about myself and and then i that over time has caused me to explore what does celibacy mean i didn 't even know that I was celibate and and now I have two of my best friends who are also celibate in a very similar way to how I am and I find an incredible amount of camaraderie in that. One of them is a man and one's a woman. One is actually gay and one is a straight woman. My, my male friend is gay and celibate. And I have learned so much from him and through his experiences of celibacy because we talk openly about it. And I just find that it's a totally different paradigm for approaching relationships with people. So people will ask me, well, are you in a relationship or are you single? And my answer is I'm neither of those, because to me, single implies that I'm alone and I'm looking for someone to be in a relationship with. And I'm really not. I used to, even in my early years of celibacy, I was looking for relationships, but now I'm not. Now, have I taken any vows of celibacy, like a monk or a priest? I haven't taken any vows at all, and I don't believe in vows, because the day might come where I want to be in a sexual relationship, and I'm not going to stop myself from doing it if it really feels right. But to be perfectly honest, the last 11 years, what I found is it just doesn't feel right. Something in me, when I self-reflect and get to my core, which I've become more connected with, tells me, Daniel when I really ask myself, is this really a healthy thing that you want to do? And is this building this relationship with you with you, with this person you're with? Or are you just going to be doing this to, you know, to get off in some ways? And I've had no lack of opportunities. I've been, had a lot of women who probably would be in a relationship with me. Some who've thrown themselves at me and I have just felt better about myself for it. And it's allowed me to grow as a person in a whole new and profound way. And I actually treasure it. And, At first, it was sort of like it was a little weird to not be dating and not be in relationships. I felt kind of alienated and maybe even a little ashamed of myself. But now I don't feel that way. And I've actually like I feel kind of proud of myself, not in a grandiose way, but just sort of in a way that says I'm proud of myself because I'm more connected with myself. And I I like myself more for how I behave. And I like the perks that I've gotten from it. And actually, the perks that I've gotten from being celibate are to me far greater then the perks I got from being sexually involved with women and by the same token, um, the, well, I don't know. I, I guess that, that's, that, that pretty much covers what I wanted to
0: say. Right. So it is. Uh, and I appreciate that. Uh, I appreciate the the candor of your explanation. It is. It is, and sounds true. like a, a an act of rational and healthy selfishness, uh, given the gains that you you get from this. And I also just wanted to express and I, I I'm sure you've heard this before, but just, you know, person to person, I just wanted to express my just deep and enormous sympathy for uh, what you suffered as a child i mean i think that goes no, without saying but i think it too often goes without saying that uh, yeah. uh that is an unbelievably tragic thing to experience and you, you really do just have my, my deepest sympathy
1: yeah and and I, I mean my also my experience now when i say sexual abuse um if i believe first of all that almost everyone's been sexually abused in various ways i don't think you can live in our culture and not at some level have your sexual self be abused but if there's um the degree of sexual abuse is the intensity of it is from one to a hundred. And I know I work with some people that are much more up in the nineties and up near a hundred people who have been raped hundreds of times by multiple people starting when they were two years old, stuff like that. Awful, awful things that have happened. Those are the people up in the nineties. I'm probably down in the twenties in what I experienced. And, and yet I still think that even though it was in the twenties or maybe in the teens, man, maybe it was even in the thirties it still had an incredibly profound effect on my development as a person and my concept of sexuality. And I'm still recovering from it. And I hear, I mean, I work with tons of people who are, you know, conventionally defined as sexual abuse survivors and they, they, and I don't want to minimize their experience by jumping on the bandwagon and saying, I too was sexually abused, but, but at the same time I was, and, and I was sexually abused by people who had a lot of responsibility to not sexually abuse me. and, I feel a lot of sadness about that. I also feel a lot of rage and a lot of resentment and a lot of anger. And and I would never deny myself those feelings because that's part of my healing process. Now, Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Now uh there are some people who are confused uh, about the difference between uh, I think you, you, you termed it um uh let me just see if I can remember emotional was it emotional sexual abuse? Uh there was a phrase that you used and I'm just trying, I'm sorry to to have uh to have missed it. Um, that's okay. emotional incest. Uh, Sorry, I think that's that's the, the thing emotional phrase that you use. I wonder if you could just explain that term a little bit for people who aren't familiar. I think we're all aware of the, the darker, to some degree, darker kind of you know, direct right. uh, physical rape and so on of children. But right. uh, the emotional incest aspect, I think, is, uh, is confusing people.
1: Yes. And I think there can be a huge amount of overlap between... Uh, first of all, I think all physical so all sexual abuse that takes place on a physical level is also emotional. It's all. every, every Yes, so I agree with that for
0: sure. Is
1: emotionally sexual abuse. But I did not experience all that much physical sexual abuse a little bit and some stuff that really was bad. But, but the majority of what I got was really just very emotionally perverse adults having relationships with me that were sexualized relationships that really, really distorted my sense of sexual self. And so I think that emotional sexual abuse that's purely emotional can be like parents who get into romantic relationships with their children under the guise of it's just a parent child relationship, but really it's a sexualized relationship. There's a lot of sexual energy that's being transformed back and forth in a very inappropriate ways. Parents getting their emotional or their most intimate emotional needs met through their children. I think that's incredibly common. And I think that that can qualify as emotional incest. Um, Parents sharing sexual material with their children, talking about sexual experiences, giving...
0: uh, Oh, sorry, or even having sexual material in the house that children can get a hold of.
1: Or or parents uh, walking around naked and sometimes can be very emotionally incestuous. Sometimes even giving sexual educational information can actually disguise a lot of perversity on the part of parents. I think parents can be emotionally, uh, sexually provocative with their children in many, many ways. Um, Parents taking sexualized pictures of their children in ways that are considered conventionally acceptable. Parents letting their children watch um, sexualized things on television, I think, can be very incestuous to children. It's not necessarily overt sexual abuse, but it definitely can be sexual abuse. Um, well, for instance, this, I would hope to hell that there's no children listening to this right now. I don't think this, this is an appropriate forum for children, just like my website. I don't think any parent should let their child look at my website. And I could think that if a parent discussed a lot of this stuff with a child, I think it could be emotionally incestuous. That, that would just be my opinion. But I, I don't know if that defines it a little bit better.
0: I think that does. Thank you for the clarification. And we have a, a woman who has uh, interested in asking you a question. If you'd like to go ahead, sure.
4: Hi, Daniel. Hi. Um, you mentioned earlier that you tend to to think of things in black and white, and that's certainly the experience that I had reading your website, which I, I must say um, disturbed me not a little. But it seems that in this call, you've either kind of modulated your views or, you know, acknowledged at least the shades of gray. I was wondering uh, why the difference and is there some sort of, I don't know, therapeutic benefit from being so black and white on your website? Or I'm just wondering uh, if there's uh, an actual reason behind the difference that I have perceived or if my perception is incorrect.
1: Well, um, hmm, good. Qu- I see your name is Charlotte, right? Yes. Hi. Uh, I think. Well, let me let me try. I just think interpersonally, a lot of times it's easier to describe the shades of gray. Also, a lot of my essays on my website are very short, three hundred words, and I'm, I can express that in. Two minutes. I want to get a whole idea across. And for the sake of brevity, I didn't want to beat around the bush on my website. I want to just get right to the point. And and so it comes across as black and white. But if I really, at at its basic essence, if I think what I'm saying on my website is incorrect, then I change it. And I have modified my website a lot over the years that I've had it up. But um, interpersonally, I think it gets... I think it's just easier sometimes to talk about some of the shades of gray, but on the other hand, now you said you were disturbed by reading stuff on my website. So then that would get into the question of, and I don't know the answer to it. Are you disturbed because my website is inherently disturbed or are you disturbed because the the bluntness at which I'm speaking is challenging your denial? And I don't, I don't know the answer to that. And so basically, is the denial mine? Is the denial yours, or is it some combination in the middle? And I, I really, I don't know. So I guess I would have to know specifics. But in general, that's how I would answer your question.
4: Sure. I mean, it, it might be possible that it's all mine, or that it's mutual. Um, the, the only or thing it's that. All it's, it's possible that it's all yours as well. It's just, it's a very interesting contrast between Steph, who tends to preface everything with, you know, this is just my opinion, as he did at the beginning of this interview, for example. Um, and, you know, your your website, which says, um, for example, I'm, I'm looking at this sort of short list of ways to speed up your path to enlightenment. And it's just, right. you know stop having sex full stop do not masturbate full stop which you've modified to to a significant degree here um that's the only thing that i I wanted to comment on
1: right now now tell me if i'm wrong i'm not on my website now but if you scroll to the bottom or maybe it's at the top i can't remember isn't there a caveat in there that says i'm being I, i acknowledge that i'm being blunt about what i'm saying and that this is not necessarily an easy path nor is it necessarily an an advisable path, because if someone stops doing these things, all sorts of other stuff is going to come up. So I think in that website, in my memory, that webpage, I actually do put some shades of gray in there. And you tell me if I'm wrong or right. I don't remember.
4: Um, I, I don't see it on this page specifically. I'm, I'm sure that there is a, a caveat somewhere else on the site, but you know this, this page to which I was directed doesn't seem to have... Um, much of that
1: interesting that i may have actually taken that down because i think at one point it was up there and i just i can't remember but anyways the thing is
0: um well sorry can i can i, I just want to jump in for one thing uh, which is yeah. to 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 uh uh i i mean i get i get these these criticisms as well which is you know all perfectly fair to be to be criticized You could make the case that uh, if somebody's sexuality is disturbed, that to some degree, cold turkey will speed things up. And obviously, if somebody's sexuality is disturbed, that's going to have an effect on the relationships they choose and the health of those relationships. And that's going to continue the pattern of, of disturbance. And if they then stop the relationship but continue masturbating to the same, possibly, again, this is all just theoretical nonsense, but if they continue to masturbate to the same theoretically disturbed uh, images or movies, then it's not really the same as healing. So... The cold turkey, I think as far as I understand it, Daniel, you're looking in a sense to to get to the underlying anxiety and to reduce the amount of self-management or self-medication through various habits. I mean, you would say the same thing to somebody who was, I would assume, uh, who was abusing drugs. You know, like, if you want to speed up your healing, you have to stop abusing drugs, and that's going to make you feel worse, but it's going to get the material into your consciousness that you actually need to process. And if the sexuality is disturbed, then the same thing would be true with the advice that you're giving. Again, I'm really paraphrasing, and tell me if I'm at all off base.
1: I think that's fair. But but if someone is going to do those, those things that I say to speed up your path to enlightenment whoa there's going to be consequences in the person's life and they're going to have to make major major life changes to be able to accommodate the emotional changes that are going to erupt from within them but uh oh gosh there was something else i was going to say and i and i i forgot it but um oh i know what it is that me not prefacing stuff not always saying in my opinion this and that Part of why I consciously did not do that on my website is that I think a lot of people, when they preface it by saying it's my opinion and I think that, I think they're actually not telling the truth. I think deep down they really believe it to be true. They're just saying that to be polite. And I decided on my website that I didn't want to be polite. I wanted to just state what I believe to be true. And people are going to know that it's, you know – ultimately that it's just my opinion i think that's just self-evident and so why did i have to say that i wanted to just be as straightforward as i could be because if i believe it i wanted to say it and and on the other hand it's like people state things as fact all the time that that doesn't that i don't necessarily agree with and i don't necessarily think is fact. and you know they often preface it well it might be true that but you know they're just being nice when they they add that in, so it doesn't threaten people as much. And in part, I you know I just want to be a little little more risque when I wrote my website.
0: Uh, does that answer your question, Charlotte, or did you want to uh, ask another or further expand this one?
4: Uh, no, but by and large, that answers my question, especially the last bit. Thank you very much.
0: Yeah, you're welcome. Now, the difference is, of course, as well that I mean. Daniel's a therapist and I'm not. So right? I just, I always want to make that clear to people. Um, so I don't have the training to make statements of that kind in any kind of absolute way. That's one of the differences, but sorry, go ahead.
1: I don't know. I, 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 I'm also a person though. So actually on my website, I'm not a therapist. I'm, I'm just writing as this is Daniel's website, but, um, it's, it's a complicated thing because I think there's, a lot of people think because someone's a therapist, therefore they're a therapist all the time. And like, actually, at the very moment when I'm talking to you right now, I'm not being a therapist. I'm I'm just speaking as a person. But to me, a therapist means that I'm engaged in a the therapeutic relationship with someone for a purpose. And actually, here, I may, more came on for the subject of like discussing therapy in general and giving opinions on whatever and, you know, on what anyone wanted to ask me. But I wasn't being a therapist to you or to anybody here.
0: Right. There's a quote that somebody posted in the chat, uh, which is of yours, that uh, if you could uh, expand a bit uh, just before we uh, end up. Uh, so you say, you've said, written that people who are not fully enlightened have sex because they're on a misplaced search for the nurturance that only deep emotional healing provides. Uh, could you right. explain a bit more what you mean by fully enlightened?
1: Ooh, fully enlightened. Well... In word four because, minutes or less, I'm no, sorry. <laughs> sorry go I'll try it. I'll try it in two minutes or less.
0: Oh, we can well, go a little over. I mean, this is true, you know, <laughs> you, you, we're we're at the mercy of your schedule, so don't feel completely oh. pressed for time because this is a podcast. But um, uh, if you could expand on that, it would be great.
1: Uh, well, my concept of enlightenment, and it's such a tricky word, and I thought so many times of ditching the word entirely, because because of all the new age and religious connotations with enlightenment that I personally don't like, but. I like the idea of enlightenment being the idea that first there is truth and that it's coming from outside of us into the truth of us. And it's also emanating from us. And so to me, full enlightenment is full resolution of all of our traumas, all of the parts of us, all of our defenses that are not really who we are at our essence. And that's based on my conception of humanity. Now, uh i think that uh, so that that's a in a nutshell definition of enlightenment my conception of what enlightenment is a lot of people would have a different conception i also think like there's a lot that would and it's just a theoretical concept because i don't know anybody that's fully enlightened myself included i still got a lot of work to do but on the other hand i derive my concept of enlightenment based primarily on my own experience of growing toward enlightenment, of resolving a lot of my traumas and also watching a lot of other people in my life, both therapy patients and other people in the world, who have done a lot of personal evolution in terms of resolving their traumas and watching them change and become more, quote, enlightened. And that's where I've derived my theories from. Now, my theoretical concept is that as a person becomes more enlightened as they also have fewer traumas, as they're more connected with their true self, they're going to be playing less of their unresolved material out through the sexual lens. Because first of all, they're going to have less unresolved material. They're going to have fewer ancient unmet needs from their childhood locked inside of them because they will have resolved that. That's part of resolving trauma also is resolving those ancient needs through healthy means through really maturing as a person. And, so people who are more mature are going to be playing less inappropriate material out through the sexual lens. And I think people who are ideally mature, if this is a true concept or not, this this idea that people can become fully enlightened, they're not going to have any unresolved childhood needs because they would have resolved them all. They're not going to have any traumatic things that they're not going to have any more psychological defenses. So they're not going to be playing anything out through the sexual lens for those people Sex would be simply a purely biological activity. It wouldn't be an emotional activity. And I think a good analogy that I think of is eating, eating food. I think people who overeat or undereat, people who are compulsive overeaters or who are, who are anorexics or who are bulimics or even getting in that direction, people who get a lot of emotional pleasure through food or or through denying themselves food, they are playing out their eating habits through their traumatic lenses, through their ancient unmet needs through the lenses of their unmet needs and as they resolve their traumas more they're not going to play out those needs those needs through the lens of food and their eating is not going to play out through the lens of unresolved traumas and so i think eating is a lot like sexuality that it's eating is actually not inherently an emotional activity. It's not a way to emotionally bond. It can be used for that, but eating is ultimately a biological activity. You stick good, healthy, appropriate food in your mouth, you chew it up, you digest it, and then you excrete it out the other end. And I think it's a good analogy for sex. I think that healthy eating is a lot like healthy sex. It's not an emotional activity.
0: Right right does that uh, does that am i going to assume that that, uh, that does answer the question now is there anything uh, i just wanted to to mention also the website for daniel is iraresoul.com and you can also do have a look for daniel Mackler on youtube do youtube to see some of his um uh, his i think very very important um, uh, videos. Certainly his material is challenging and I actually quite appreciate that. Uh, he would no more agree with everything I say than I would with myself or perhaps he would from day to day with himself. But I think that uh, as a group that has some of the most challenging material on the web, uh, I think that we should uh, welcome and embrace the challenges of his perspective. Uh, I think it's uh, it's a good thing to to put yourself up against that kind of light and see what kind of shadows get cast. So um, I really do appreciate well, thank you. Uh, Yeah, I really do appreciate the perspective that you put forward. I I myself do do uh, I'm a little bit more um, content with the lack of what are sometimes called weasel words, you know, that it seems to be and in general and mostly and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, I think that. I think that if you do believe something that straight up, it's it's honest and has integrity to communicate it that straight up. And uh, you know, I'm sure he would be open to disagreements if uh, if good evidence were presented. Yeah. But you know, uh, I really do appreciate sh- that perspective. Sorry, go ahead.
1: Can I share something with you, Stefan? That's interesting. Please. I was watching one of your, uh, I, I, you know, before I did the your show last week. Um,
0: yeah. You did I the. I, I talk- hope he's not nuts. Tour here. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, I was just curious. I wanted to know who it was that that was, you know, going to be interviewing me and who I was interacting with. And in part, it was for healthy reasons. And I think in part, it was I was really insecure. And I was like, uh, I don't want to say anything that's going to offend him. So I want to find out what his point of view is so I can be more gentle. But I watched one thing where you said, with no weasel words at all, you said, homosexuality is caused by um, prenatal hormones, something like that. And I thought, ooh. I don't agree with that. And it was really interesting because in one sense, I really appreciated it that you didn't use any weasel words. You just said it straight up as this is fact. And what I felt is that sets the stage for a really honest debate and discussion because you can't really back out of it when you say something that strongly. And so to me, that's like an example. I do a lot of that kind of stuff. I put stuff out very bluntly. Now, I might be wrong sometimes, but at least I've taken a stand. And I really admire it when people take a stand, because especially in the therapeutic field, people are terrified to take a stand. They're little mice. They run around squeaking all the time, and they never say what they really believe. And half the time, they don't believe in anything anyway. So actually, I wanted to be one of those people who says, you know, if deep in my heart I believe it, I'm going to say it, and I'm going to state it as fact. I may be wrong. And you know what? I'm open to grow and change. And if somebody challenges me, I'm going to go back and think about it. For instance, later tonight or maybe tomorrow, I'm going to go back and I'm going to read that essay that I wrote on ways to heat, speed up your path to enlightenment. And I'm going to think about what Charlotte said. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to decide, well, you know, maybe I was too harsh. Maybe I was too black and white. And you know what? Maybe in two years, I'll go back and read my whole website and go, oh, my God, this whole website is so blunt and black and white. And I come across like such an arrogant jerk. Maybe I should rewrite the whole thing and make it more gentle and make it more shades of gray. But for now, for whatever reason, conscious or unconscious, that's what I needed and wanted to do. And, you know, if it disturbs or offends some people that I felt, well, I guess that must be a sacrifice that I need to make. But will it be this way for me forever? I really don't know.
0: So right. uh, It is is—it is a challenge in, in the continuum of, of change that we all go through. Um, we could spend our whole lives never having any, any opinions saying, well, or never ever having any firm opinions because, well, it might be different in five years from now. But, uh, you know, with regards to the, I mean, the science is really strong on the homosexuality and hormonal issue, and uh, I get lots of people who challenge me on that, and I sent them lots of right. references, and I never heard back from anybody whose science uh, put right. doubt on that, uh, and, right. uh, you know, we'll, we'll find out. Certainly, if the science proves different, then I will uh, remove that or put a caveat on it or update it, right. but I think you do have to, uh, uh, I think you do have to recognize that, that certainty right. is possible, even in the continuum of, uh, of, of change and new information, uh, otherwise we can spend our whole lives uh, just deferring to the possibility of error. And that's, uh, okay. I think not right. a respectful position to take because, and you know, boring. bad people are always very certain. And I think it's important for good people to, to fight that certainty as well. Right. Can I share one thing, Stefan? Uh, you can share five things if you like.
1: Okay. After I heard you say that on that, uh, video, when you said homosexuality is caused by prenatal hormones, I was like, Ooh, I don't agree. And I was kind of annoyed by it, but I was like, okay. I went and I started researching on it. And I found that actually I found a lot more material that supported your point of view than I had expected to find. So I chilled out and I was like, oh, kudos to Stefan. But then at the same time, I didn't let it go. I have an essay on my website. I call it Why Are Gay People Gay? Also. And and I studied this like mad. Now, what I thought is the basic challenge I had for you. And, and I didn't ne- didn't necessarily come on here to debate you on this. But I thought I have known... Two different sets of identical twins, both men, where one man defines himself as purely gay and one man defines one one twin defines himself as purely gay and one twin defines himself as purely straight. Identical monozygotic twins; they were ra- they have the exact same genetic makeup and they were both raised in the same intrauterine. Environment, So I find that fascinating as a challenge to the hormonal thing. And then I yep, have lots of other things. That certainly is. And
0: if you, if, if, if you would like to send me any more information, I would be absolutely happy to to look that up. And, and what comes out of this, I think, is that I really like to uh, – I will get an expert on and, you know, we'll, we'll put that or I'll put that to him and we'll ask what the expert would have to say about that uh, because I'm really right. interested in reeling in the experts yeah. these days because Lord knows yeah. I've talked for long enough in this show. So I think that's great. If you could send me that yeah. stuff, I will absolutely place it yeah. to well, in I, I have an a, see what they say.
1: I have a link on my website for my essay. Now, what I had the chance to do is what was very interesting is one of the sets of twins, they're in their mid 80s. And one has actually since died. But the interesting thing is they were both psychotherapists. And one was actually a prominent psychotherapist who's published a few books. He was a a semi-famous gestalt therapist. I have one of his books. And I asked him, I said, I would actually like to interview you about why you think you're gay and your identical twin brother is straight because it goes in the face of everything that says that it's a biological condition because this is basic proof that it's environmental in your case. So he said, okay, I went up to his office. He was about 82 at the time. We sat for about three hours and I just grilled him for hours. And you know what we finally came up with? What he finally came up with? He had absolutely no clue why he was gay and why his brother was straight. No, no idea. I still had still have my theories. I had theories that I think are better than his, but it was just interesting.
0: Right, right. Well, Noah, and, that, and look, that that's great information to have. And you're absolutely right that it does strike a blow against the hormonal theory. So I will uh, try and dig up some, some good information and, and see if we can't either get an expert to say, Steph, the hormonal theory is still tentative, in which case I'll broadcast that, or to say there's some explanation for it, which we should also talk about. So I really appreciate or, or that. I hom- will have a look at that.
1: Yeah, Or the hormonal theory is 80% true, but 20% not true. Something like that. Yeah, because, yeah. And, I, and I don't know. And that's where it's like, hmm, I, I don't know. And, I, and I, by the way, I've asked so many gay people why they think they're gay. And very few come up with a really good answer. But on the same, by the same token, I've asked a ton of straight people, including myself, why am I straight? Why are you straight? And they don't know either. Most people don't have a good answer for it because well, so,
0: girls are so pretty. Anyway.
1: Right. That's my exactly.
0: scientific explanation. Girls are pretty. <laughs> and
1: for some people, boys are too. You know,
0: Absolutely. So. All right. Well, listen, uh, being respectful of your time, and I really, really do appreciate yeah. it. Um, uh, did you have a fun time on the show? Was it sort of what you expected? Was it close to what you expected, or was it something different?
1: Well, it's actually interesting that you ask. Uh, if I can go for two more minutes on that subject. Yeah, please. This time, I had a lot fewer expectations, and I was a lot calmer on your show. The last time, oh, man, I I thought you were going to grill me. So I was like in defensive mode. I didn't tell you this, but I thought you were going to be really harsh, and you were going to have lists of things that you were going to critique my point of view. So I was actually more anxious and had a lot more expectations and was quite wrong about what my expectations of the show were going to be like this time. I was just calm and was coming in to have a good time, so I really had no expectation. I just thought it would be fun, and, and actually it proved to be that.
0: Well, I'm glad, and I, I think people misunderstand. I, I am merciless on bad ideas, but I'm actually quite nice to people, um, so <laughs> I think way. people, people exactly get that confused, way. I think.
1: Right, and, and I feel the same way. It's like I love to take apart an idea and rip it to pieces, but at the same time, when I interact with the person behind the idea, it's like I can really like them.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. So I'm glad you had a good time. And, and I just wanted to point out or to, to relate that the people in the chat room are saying that this is this is the, by far the best Sunday show so far of the new decade, which uh, I take enormously personally. No, I'm kidding. No, I, I appreciate that. So you you just got fantastic reviews, and people have really, really enjoyed uh, having you on the show. And I just wanted to wish you a fantastic trip to uh, to Finland. And I hope you'll think about maybe uh, spending a few minutes to share your findings when you get back. Yeah.
1: Interestingly, I'm going on Tuesday. I'm going to Sweden for a week, but then in the summer, I'm going to be going to Finland.
0: So, oh, fantastic. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Good. So it's a I'm here to the that socialist of... paradises. Very nice.
1: Yeah, that part of the world. Okay.
0: All right. Well, have well, a great trip, much. and uh, perhaps we'll talk when you get back. And thank you again so much for taking the time.
1: Yeah. Thank you. Bye, all.